Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. So Austin spent the last two weeks walking through chapter 1. In chapter 1, we saw that there was a famine in the land, but not only was there a famine, but Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws have lost their husbands. Naomi lost her husband, Elimelech. So you have three widows. So the three widows who are poor, three widows who are destitute, three widows who have no means or no provisions so that they can basically sustain life. So they pack up their things and they head for Judah because over in Judah, Naomi had a relative. And so I don't get too far ahead of myself. They go there to see this relative because this relative would play a major role in the life of both Naomi and of Ruth. So Naomi and Ruth end up heading over to Judah. Orpah stays behind. Both daughter-in-laws were going to go with Naomi, and Naomi pled with them saying, no, let me be. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. You don't want to be with me. Go and take care of yourself. Go and find new husbands for yourselves so that you can be taken care of, so that you can have life, and so that you can be okay. But Ruth is the one that said, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay. And it was during this time that Ruth expresses a trust and confidence in the God that Naomi served. She trusted Yahweh. Remember that Ruth is a Moabitess because Naomi's sons married Moabite women, which was a no-no, but they did it anyway. And so you have Ruth and Orpah, who are these Moabite women. Orpah stays behind, and Ruth ends up going with Naomi and trusting and following the God of Israel. Now, before we get into the story, because the story really starts to pick up speed and you see some very interesting dynamics that begin to surface, but not just those dynamics, but this becomes very theological very quickly. And it's important to understand where this goes theologically. So I want to present and discuss two terms with you that I think are paramount to being able to view the book of Ruth through the proper lenses. Term one is sovereignty. Term two is providence. You can't cancel out sovereignty and providence when you're walking through not just the book of Ruth, but through the entirety of the Bible. Because sovereignty and providence are two brushes that God uses to paint on the entire canvas known as the biblical narrative. So it's important that we understand these things and understand how they are rightly defined. First of all, sovereignty is simply God's rule. It's his control over all things. And that's it. God does control all things. All things, Paul writes, they happen after the counsel of God's will. Everything that comes to pass is after the counsel of his will. There's no darkness in God. There's no evil in God. God is not immoral. He is not corrupt. He is not bad. He is not wrong. He is light. He is not darkness. Yet everything that happens happens after his will or according to his will as a product of his divine nature and his perfections. Listen to this. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's Every decision 
is from whom? It's from the Lord. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everything that happens, everything that happens is ultimately from God and is a product of his sovereignty. The New Testament recognizes it as well in Matthew 10, 29 through 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Jesus said, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Why would he say it like that? He's showing the seeming insignificance of these birds. These birds are not created in the image of God. Humans are. And he says, if these two birds who are sold for a penny, if he controls everything, and if not one of them will fall to the ground apart from God willing it, not knowing it, willing it. God is actively involved and actively moving sovereignly throughout every event that transpires in the course of life. Mark 4, 39 says, Jesus commands the winds to cease and they obey him. Inanimate and animate objects as well. God controls them. He speaks to the wind, it ceases. He speaks to waves and they subside. He speaks in the darkness and there's light. He speaks to a canvas that is blank and it yields growth. He speaks to what is dead and gives it life. Why? Because they recognize his rule and his control. That's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is not God knows things. It's that he controls all things. And this is just how the Bible presents it. Maybe it's not super easy to tie it in a nice, pretty bow, but, and maybe it's not easy to connect with it emotionally, but I think what's very important when you understand the Bible and when you're just looking at life, that you have to look at it through the proper lenses of God's sovereignty. And at the end of all things, you respond to what you know to be true rather than responding to how you might feel at any given moment in time. The psalmist writes on God's sovereignty in Psalm 33. He said, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart to all generations. And then Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. It's like we're standing here opening up our palm, looking down into an open, empty hand. And then there's water in there, and we can turn that little puddle of water, that little drop of water. We can turn our hand to the left or to the right or forwards or backwards. And that water moves where we want it to move, in the direction that we want it to move. And this is the psalmist's way of illustrating the sovereignty of God, is that all things happen after the counsel of His will and are under His absolute control. And this is good news because it gives meaning to the hard things that happen. It gives meaning and significance to to, to, to the evils that we see in the world all the time. It's not that God is evil, 
but it's that God is sovereign over evil, and it's not arbitrary. What happened to Joseph in the Bible was an evil, wicked thing, but at the end of it, Joseph says, listen, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. One action, two intentions. It didn't say what you meant for evil, God used for good. God didn't make lemonade out of lemons. God ordained things from the before the foundations of the world to come to pass. All for His glory and all for good. So sovereignty is a word that you need to be well acquainted with, and it's a lens through which you need to look and understand the Scriptures. But providence is another word. This is what comes to pass as an act of God's sovereignty. So God is in control. God rules and controls all things. And when God takes that rule, when he takes that control, when he takes that power, and he starts to strategically move things into place, that is called providence. It's called providence. Those of you who are married in this room, you met your spouse, not by happenstance, but by God providentially working under his sovereignty to bring things to pass. You're a part of Haven Ridge by the providence and the sovereignty of God. I am your pastor by the providence and the sovereignty of God. So these are two words you need to be well acquainted with. And they're words that although they don't come up in a literary sense in the book of Ruth, they definitely come up conceptually. They are painted all across the canvas of Ruth. So let's take these two words and let's use those as a lens through which we look at chapter 2 and we start to understand this. So let's read together in chapter 2 and let's start to kind of let the story unfold as we have a proper perspective as we're operating under proper terms as they are defined rightly. So chapter 2 begins this way. It says, Now Naomi... Naomi had a relative of her husband's who was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. She says, let me glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I will find favor. And she said to him, go. Or she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And Boaz was of the clan of Elimelech. So that's the relationship. They're both from the tribe of Judah. And behold, it says, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered to him, and they said, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now, I don't believe that Boaz was asking because he was attractive. Boaz was an older man. Ruth was a younger woman. Didn't mean that she wasn't pretty and didn't mean that he didn't find her attractive. But the sentiment behind this phrasing is not that of, oh, she looks really good. I want to get to know her. It's more of, this is a foreigner who is now in this land, in this field, and I haven't seen her before. So he's making an inquiry as to who this woman is that he has not seen. And the servant who is in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman. Now, she's referred to throughout the book of Ruth as a Moabite woman several times. She is indeed a foreigner, but not just a foreigner. She is a Moabite woman. She is a Moabitess. 
And the Moabites did not have a good reputation. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures, it shows that the Moabite women were responsible for leading Israelite men into immorality and idolatry. So the cards seem to be kind of stacked against Ruth here because of her nationality, because of where she came from. And so Ruth is about to say something. The servant again says she is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here's the picture, just to recap. They arrive in Judah. They don't have a way to survive. So what does Ruth do? She's young, she's healthy, she's strong. And she says, I'm gonna go to the field and I'm going to glean. And hopefully I'll find this relative of yours and I'll find favor in his sight. She goes to the field and she does exactly what she asks Naomi to do. In these fields, there was a process called the reaping process. They showed up in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, or sorry, they showed up in the time of, uh, in Judah during the time of the, the barley harvest. And during this time, reapers would go out into the field, and the reapers would walk through the barley fields, and they would hold a sickle, which was a long curved knife, and they would chop down the barley. And then they would put these, then they would put what they had chopped into these big bundles, and they would carry them off, ultimately carry them over to the threshing floor, which we'll see later. But what would happen as they were collecting this barley is they would gather these large bundles and inevitably pieces of the barley would fall off into the ground. So Ruth wanted to go and glean, which meant to go and pick up the barley that had fallen from these bundles. But it was also a right to her as a foreigner, as a poor woman, as a woman who would be destitute, no one to look out for her, no inheritance or anything like that, the law said that in a barley field, the outer edges could not be touched. That was left for the poor. That was left for the destitute, destitute to come behind and to gather these things. And so she had right to be out there, but yet she still asked for permission, which is interesting. It really just shows the character and the quality of the woman that she was. So she has asked for permission to go out into this field to collect the barley. So she's out here, she's asked permission, verse eight picks up, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. 
And she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So what's happened here is Boaz is lavishing grace on this woman. Boaz is a native of the land. She is not. She is a foreigner who formerly worshipped pagan gods. And now she's come over to this land as a foreigner, as a stranger, as someone who really doesn't belong. And Boaz, a man who does belong, Boaz, a good man, a worthy man, a man who has, who has power, starts lavishing these gifts on her, showing her tremendous love, not in a romantic sense, but in a sense that he wanted to provide and to show great kindness to her. And this was also indicative of the kind of person that Boaz was. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, which is about 29 to 50 pounds of grain. This is a lot of grain, of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law saw it and said to her, where did you glean? Where did you glean today, and where, did, where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took hold, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And I think what happens here is Naomi starts to turn a bit of a corner. Remember previously in chapter 1, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi because that meant sweet. She says, but rather call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And I'm sure everyone here feels that way sometimes. Do you feel that God sometimes just deals bitterly with you? That maybe he doesn't hear you. Maybe you've gone through so many hard times despite the fact that you've prayed over and over again and you've pleaded with God, but yet it just seems like it's one catastrophe after another and you just raise your hands and say, why? Why are you dealing so bitterly with me? This was what Naomi felt. She still trusted God. She still followed God. I think that's a lesson that we could learn from this woman is that despite the hardship, despite the crucible that she was in, having fled from her home, having lost her husband, and now she's here with no one or nothing, no guarantees of survival. And she sees that Ruth has been dealt kindly from this man, Boaz. So Naomi says, blessed be the Lord who has caused this kindness to fall onto your head. And so maybe Ruth or maybe Naomi is coming out of this spiral that she's been going down into and she's recognizing God is here, God is still in this, God is still good. And look, here's the proof. He's lavished these gifts on you by way of his servant Boaz. And Naomi also said to her, getting back to the text, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. He's one of our redeemers, and this is very important. And it's very interesting that the term redeemer is used thousands of years before we understand Christ. 
as the Redeemer. We knew that there was a promised one. We knew that the seed of promise would come and he would bring about redemption. But here we have in this, under this old covenant, this word Redeemer being used. And it's not by happenstance, by any stretch of the imagination, the word Redeemer is used very intentionally as the authors of the Bible wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Boaz was said to be a relative of Naomi. Later we're going to see that he is a kinsman redeemer. He's a relative, he's a kinsman redeemer. He is kinfolk to Naomi. Now let me give you a brief description of how this kind of works. If you go to Leviticus chapter 25, or if you go to some other like Deuteronomy, and there's places in these texts where it explains the relationship of the kinsman redeemer to the one who needs to be redeemed. Now being redeemed by a kinsman came in many forms. It might have been redeeming property. But there is also, according to the Leverite marriage, which is wrapped up in the concept of the kinsman redeemer, the fact that if someone lost a husband, that the next of kin, the closest kin in the line, would come and would marry the widow and would give the widow a child so that the name could continue, so that the family line might be able to continue. In Deuteronomy 25, it says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." So this was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz was a kinsman redeemer to Naomi. So the story continues. In verse 21 it says, And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Boaz is looking out for this woman. He doesn't have to, but because Boaz is a worthy man, which meant he was a respectful man, he was a wealthy man, he was a man of honor, he's looking after her. He's taking care of this woman. And this was a big deal. So there's where chapter 2 leaves off. So let's start to kind of dive in a little bit into some of these dynamics of chapter 2. So every story has character development. And when you look at chapter 2, you have three primary characters Orpah was a part of the story at the beginning, but she's, she's just a footnote. She's just uh, an honorable mention. But now you have the key components of the story and their characters starting to develop, which are Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. 
I don't know about you, but years ago, when the show Lost was really popular on television, my wife and I, we really got in. Uh, we really got into that, in, into that show. Now, we didn't get into the show until a few years um, uh, after it had already aired for the first time. So we were several seasons in once we started. But we bought them on DVD, and we just started watching through them to try to catch up the best we could. So admittedly, we went on a bit of a binge watching Lost. And if you've ever seen Lost, you understand that a lot of the first season is building these characters because there's so many key players in this narrative. But whether you like it or not, it's essential to the bigger picture. It's essential that you develop these characters so you can kind of know what's going on, what their story is, why they are the way they are. And this is true in our life. You sit side by side with people that you may or may not know their story. And once you get to know someone's story, once their life, their character, their story is developed, you then understand a little bit better what makes them tick. Why are they this way? Why might they respond in this way to this particular situation? And it might be because they're a product of their story. And their story might help you to understand who they are. But either way, there has to be some character development. And that's what the author of Ruth does for us. The author provides character development. Beginning with Naomi, a God-fearing woman whose faith remains intact, even though she feels the Lord has dealt bitterly with her. Despite her own hardship, she wishes the Lord's kindness on her daughter-in-laws. She was the kind of woman that her daughters, that her daughter-in-laws held in high esteem because they were both initially willing to stay with her. I think that, I think that is representative of the quality and the caliber of woman that Naomi was. But the author doesn't just want us to know Naomi. He also wants us to know He also wants us to know Ruth. Ruth was a woman of strong loyalty. At the end of the chapter one, she insisted on going to Judah with Naomi. Although she had legal right to glean in the field, she would not do so without permission. This was a display of her great character and her respect, uh, and and, and, uh, her respect for Boaz and respect for her being a stranger in a foreign land. She also had a good work ethic. It said that she would work and take very little rest. So all these little small nuances in the story are a part of the character development. So you can see what kind of woman this is. So there's so many, there's so many meta-narratives that start to surface in this bigger narrative. You see the quality and the character and the caliber of these people, and you think these are, these are God-loving, God-fearing you know, people. And then God, through the author, shows us Boaz, a worthy man, wealthy and of good reputation. Notice the way that he greeted his workers. And notice the way that they responded to him. May the Lord bless you, sir. He showed hospitality to a foreigner. Not just hospitality, but he went above and beyond. He could have just let her glean in the field and been done with that. But no, he protects her so that no one touches her, no one messes with her. He says, you need to stick with these young women. You need to go and you need to be right here because that's where you're going to be provided. And then he lavishes nearly 60 pounds of grain on her, more than she could sit there and eat. And this is all to show you the kind of people that God is using as a part of this narrative. So the story has significant meaning 
as the characters start to develop. I think there's a couple of different perspectives that you can have when you're looking at a story like this. As you walk up and you have a close-up perspective, I think this is the way you should look at all stories in the Bible. As you walk up and you see that there's a close-up view and then there's kind of you back up and there's more of a wide-angle view. I think it's always important to look at it from that. I think when you, when you zero in and you put it under a microscope, you see that God is teaching on his sovereignty, that he's showing you his providence in bringing Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem or to Judah during the barley harvest. It's scripture says they just happened to be there at that right time. That doesn't mean it was coincidence. It means that it happened as a result of God's sovereign and providential hand. Just like Jesus was handed over according to what God's hand and plan had, uh, or according to what God's hand and plan um, has has caused to bring has caused to bring to pass. Just as Jesus was handed over, according to what God had planned, these three came together into each other's lives according to what God had planned. So you see sovereignty, you see providence. You know, how many times do you just, how many times do things just happen to work out in our life? And how many times do you see things like that and you say, well, that was kind of a crazy coincidence? Well, it's not. Nothing's ever a coincidence. Either God's hand is on something or it's not. Either he's sovereign or he's not. Either he's sovereign over and controls all or he doesn't control anything. You just don't see that any other way represented throughout the Bible. Over 31,000 verses and everything cumulatively points to God being in absolute control. He doesn't wind us up and then just let us roll and then he kind of deals with the aftermath. That's not how scripture presents him. Regardless of what you feel emotionally, we have to be honest with ourselves and honor, honest with the truth that's presented and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move forward according to the truth, according to what's revealed. Because I would be willing to wager that if you follow your feelings, you're going to end up in trouble most of the time. I think not only are there teachings on sovereignty and providence, but teachings on humility. The phrasing she used, Naomi used in seeking permission, was commonly expressed by subordinates addressing a king or a superior. She's basically acknowledging a dependence on him. When she had a right to be in the field, she still humbles herself, humbles herself approaches him, with this kind of demeanor, this kind of disposition, and says, you are my superior. You are my authority. And she subordinates herself to him. She had legal rights to glean, but chose to show respect to Boaz, the landowner, and to show humility. This should be a good lesson to us, that even when we have rights or freedoms to a certain thing, it doesn't simply mean that we can exercise that right or that we should always exercise that right. I think there's also teachings on hospitality and generosity. Notice the way that Boaz treated her as a foreigner. Notice the way that he does this. Again, in verses 14 through 17, he says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she ate beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So he provided her with more than what she needed until she was absolutely satisfied. There's hospitality, generosity. And so I think one of the 
ways that we can hold the mirror up in front of our faces when we're considering what these meta-narratives are and how they speak to us and what God intends for us to get is we might ask ourselves, do we look past the Ruths that might be in our midst, that might be in our little circles, our little groups? Most likely the Ruths that are in our lives are on the fringes. They're foreigners to us, metaphorically speaking. But how do we approach them? Do we approach them as a Boaz? Or as someone who recoils at the thought of intermingling with someone who's a foreigner? Do you have the eyes of Boaz that notice a foreigner and makes sure to take care of them? What about as a church? What does our hospitality look like? Are we a hospitable church? Do we show hospitality to the people that come in here? Or do they feel like they're foreigners when they enter and when they leave? In particular, what does it look like towards those that don't look or act like us? This is obviously a problem in our culture and in our world. And I think we should definitely have the disposition that Boaz has, and that is to lavish love on people that don't quite look like us. And don't get me wrong, it most assuredly means that lavishing love is to give them the gospel if they're not in Christ. If they're foreigners to that degree, if they're estranged from the covenants of promise, according to what, uh, to what the, the, to use the language that Paul uses in Ephesians, yeah, give them the gospel, that's love, but, it, but, it's, but it's so many other things as well. So back to the text, there's teachings on hospitality, generosity, there's teachings on faith. Another lesson we learn from the Moabite woman is blind faith. Ruth abandoned her pagan religion and false God to embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Perhaps Ruth saw that regardless of how bitterly God had dealt with Naomi, that Naomi still trusted God. And I think that's going to be an argument that is, uh, that, that is well defended in the coming chapters. Her faith led her to a strange land where she had no idea how things would end up. Does your faith do the same for you? Faith and loyalty to God doesn't necessarily start with a robust theology. It doesn't necessarily start with a robust theology. You've heard the sentiment before that you have to crawl before you can walk. Having a robust theology is not the prerequisite to faith in God. The term childlike faith is the term that it is for a reason because you can come to God and trust Him completely as a child without knowing all there is to know about God without that robust theology. So when we put this text under the microscope, there's providence of God, there's theology, there's hospitality, there's generosity, there's humility, there's all these lessons that we learn, but then we back up and we start to see the bigger picture. And we see these beautiful truths that God is showing us as He takes thread after thread after thread and He weaves together this tapestry that will ultimately one day culminate in this beautiful image that one day we will all be able to see. 
When you're looking at this text, again, I want to draw attention back to this, is that, is that Boaz is not only called a relative, but he's called a redeemer. He's called a redeemer. Who do we know as the redeemer? Jesus Christ. So why would Jesus, who is our redeemer, why would Jesus share such a title with someone, a mere man, written under the Mosaic law, why would he share that title with anyone else? Well, that's interesting. And it's important that you understand that when you're reading through the Bible, in order for God to communicate things and to pull back the curtain little by little to show us the bigger picture, but a little bit at a time, God uses typologies. God has raised up people throughout the, throughout the generations to point to Christ, and that is exactly what he does with Boaz. Let me show you. I'm going to argue that Boaz is a type of Christ. Typology is a way the Lord uses figures throughout the Scriptures to point to something else, to point to something greater. Types usually seem strongly coincidental, but they are intentional. Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was, get this, from the tribe of Judah. Which tribe was Jesus from? The tribe of Judah. Boaz was from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus from? Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. When people acted as kinsman redeemers for their family, they were imaging the work of God to the destitute and to the helpless. The redemption by Boaz was a picture of what God had done and would do for Israel in the fullness of God's plan. Redemption at the Exodus foreshadowed redemption at the cross of Christ. By acting as a redeemer for the family of Elimelech, Boaz is a type of Christ. One theologian said this, in fact, as important a role as a kinsman redeemer is in Leviticus 25, Boaz is the only human kinsman redeemer featured in the whole Old Testament. It cannot be coincidental that redeemer appears 22 times in the book of Ruth. The precise number that the word appears in Leviticus. Boaz is the ideal kinsman redeemer described in Leviticus, and he foreshadows the redeemer who will embody the role in a surpassing way. Jesus came to the spiritually destitute, those enslaved to sin and in helpless estate. Then at incredible cost to himself, Jesus redeemed sinners. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. Acting as a redeemer, just as Christ redeemed people from their sins. Boaz, marriage to Ruth, was a mixed marriage. Christ is married to the church. The church is comprised of all who were foreigners, all who were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and then were grafted in. Boaz was a Jew and Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabitess. Notice that there was exceeding kindness shown by Boaz to youth. Boaz extended much grace and kindness to Ruth, who was helpless and destitute. This all images Christ's constant mercy, grace, kindness, and love that he lavishes on us. Boaz was a generous and abundant provider. Ruth gleaned and always had more than she needed. Christ is not tight-fisted in his giving. 
In Matthew, Jesus healed every disease and affliction. He fed thousands upon thousands with five loaves and two fish. He forgave sins by ultimately giving his life. So Jesus is generous, and he is an abundant provider. It's clear who Boaz represents, but who does Ruth represent? It's clear that Boaz represents Christ. Boaz is a type of Christ, just as so many others throughout the Old Testament served as a type of Christ. Also that God could graciously pull back the curtain so that we could see the stage that was set behind. We could see that Christ is there. But who does Ruth represent? Ruth represents you and she represents me. We were strangers. We were enemies of God. We were hostile towards God. We were dead in our transgressions. We had no rights. We worshiped false gods. Our hearts were idle factories. But God, being rich in kindness because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ Jesus by giving us a redeemer. At which point we were given full access to all that was his. When a redeemer redeems someone. In this case, if Boaz is to marry Ruth, do you understand what this would mean? This would mean a worthy man would marry an unworthy woman, a foreigner, a stranger, a former pagan idolater. And through that marriage, through that relationship, she would be, in a sense, well, she would be grafted into his family and therefore have his name, have all the rights, and have all the privileges, when at no point in her life did she ever deserve it. When each of the threads of Ruth's story are woven together, the final tapestry shows us the covenantal faithfulness of God through Christ's redemptive work and bringing together men from every nation, tongue, and tribe. The point is that we all identify with Ruth, a foreigner from a pagan land, a worshiper of false gods, no rights, no reason to be accepted, but the sovereignty and providence of God led her to a redeemer, who would restore her because of God's unwavering covenantal faithfulness. That is a loving God.